Um, so this is John 3, 1 to 15. So at the very beginning, we're starting to see that Jesus is growing in popularity. Do you guys, any of you remember when the Beatles said that they're more popular than Jesus Christ? Remember that great line they had? And you know what? I don't know if they were or not. Um, they were certainly very, very popular. But Jesus Christ is an extremely popular figure. There's very few people who have ever, that have not heard of Jesus, whether they believe he's the son of God or not. He is well known. In this time of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning, just weeks out of him opening up his public ministry, he was doing many, many, many miracles. And we learned last week that miracles were a... um, evidence of his deity. He was doing things that only God could do, like creating wine from water um, and so many other things that aren't written in the word that he was doing. And it was causing a lot of people to follow him. You look at some of these uh, political rallies that we see on TV these days, and it's masses of people turning out. Well, where Jesus was, wasn't quite that populated and you didn't have cars to get you to places, but you think of it as masses of people following Jesus. He was like the number one talk of the town. John entered, brought it in, John the Baptist, and then when Jesus got there and started doing these, these miracles, it was like, whoa, whoa, he is the coolest thing. We are going to hang out with him because he's a cool guy. We want to know what he's going to do next. And just, just like, so a lot of people were following Jesus. They were outwardly identifying with Jesus. I want to be with him because he can do this kind of stuff. What's he going to do next? I want to hang out with him because it's a really good thing to hang out with him. But there was no inward change that was happening They weren't genuinely being converted. And we learned from last week, our lesson ended with Jesus knew what was in man and he didn't entrust himself to anybody. He knew really what was in the heart of all these masses of people that were hanging around him and loving on him and stuff like that. He knew it was in the heart. And the hearts that he was looking at were hearts that needed to be genuinely converted. There was a high cost to following Jesus, and a lot of these people didn't realize that. In Luke 9, 57, Luke writes, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't have any place, no creature comforts if you follow Jesus. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But if for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, he's got to be more important than even family ties and things that have to do with that. It's basically a self-abandonment to follow Christ. These people did not realize that, that following Jesus was going to be a a lot of trials. It meant something that these people really didn't even understand yet because the Holy Spirit hadn't really come down and um, started coming into people's hearts in a consistent manner. So there was a whole new covenant that was happening that they were not aware of. So a lot of them were clinging to him and following him and saying, I want to identify with him. This still goes on today. 
even though we have the Spirit of God that indwells believers. There's a problem that arises when people think they're Christians or believe they're Christians or check the box to go to church or learn how to speak Christianese, and really there's no heart change. It's just what we do. We're in the Bible Belt. People go to church. Where do you go to church? That's the, you know, one of the things you agree. You know, where do you go to church? Well, I go here. When I, in my practice, ask somebody, you know, you know what, do you have any faith? Or, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, but I haven't been to church in a while, but I'm a Christian. They identify with it. I was born in America, and I'm a Christian. So they cling to a false profession of faith, and many people fool themselves into believing that they are on the narrow path to heaven. Yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. And if you really nail them to the wall, it's like, well, how do you know if you died today? Well, I'd like to think I'd go to heaven because I'm a good person. You get that answer more often than not in Bible Belt here. And it doesn't help that it's reinforced by undiscerning Christians who naively embrace them into their fellowship as true believers. Oh, you're here, you're coming to church, well, come on down. And they do not help them to really do some self-examinations and see if their faith is true. So the church at large is part of this problem. Many churches today are market-driven ministries, and they'll accept any profession of faith as genuine. They're not going to question it. They'll just show up on Sunday. I'll sign you up to do this and this and this. We need someone to do this and this. And okay, there's a warm body doing it. Outward stuff. Not an inward change of the heart. So no one's faith is questioned, even though it isn't even manifested in outward things. We look the other way. We don't like to ex- exhort or confront people. There's no accountability for self-examination. No accountability for self-examination in today's church. This conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is going to tell him, and with the preservation of scriptures, tell us the strong need there is to have self-examination. Jesus is uncompromising with his demand for total commitment. Following Jesus is a life that means you're dying to self. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, these are the Lord's words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Such a sad ordeal. That's a, that is devastating. So Jesus, here in the third chapter of John, is going to emphasize the importance of a changed heart to follow Jesus. Verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Let's get a picture of who Nicodemus is. First of all, his name means conqueror over the people. He was over the people. He was a leader. 
He was a member of the elite religious party, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were separated ones. The Pharisees were leaders who were so zealous for the, the law of Moses that they just lived it uh, by the T. They just studied the law of Moses. They knew the law of Moses. They understood the law of Moses. They could teach other people the law of Moses. And they even added on extra things to help reinforce the law of Moses. They lived and breathed the law of Moses. They were zealous for the law. But this caused them to become ritualized and very external. It's what we do. We do this. We have to follow the law. We have to do this. We have to do this. But without any changed hearts, they replaced true religion for ritual and behavioral mod modification. Now, we know that the law is there for us to show us we can't keep the law, right? The law was presented to us to let us know we're going to fail. We're, we, there's a need for a Savior. We cannot do this. But the Pharisees, they said they just strove after beating themselves, struggling to just to meet the law and be obedient all the time. Even when they fail, well, they make sacrifices, but they kept to it. In Matthew, it talks about them being blind guides of the blind. But if the law was put into place to show us our need for a Savior, right there is self-examination, isn't it? We can't do this. Man, I feel like, ooh, I slipped, I lied, I did, ooh, I did that, ooh, I had that bad thought. Wow, that is self-examination right there. Well, here's Nicodemus coming to Jesus. Before we go any further into verse 2, let's just remind ourselves, what, what did Jesus think of them? What did Jesus think of those Pharisees? In Matthew 23, he's got seven woes. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. Seven of them. Hypocrites, serpents, brood of vipers. Jesus had no time for these men that thought they were just, you know, mighty men in the church. He had, he thought very little of them. So he was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which like, was like a governing council. They had the Romans. That was the overall governing body. And then under that, they had the Sanhedrin, the, this group of, of um, rulers of Jews, the Sanhedrin, that would make arrests, go to trial in civil cases and criminal cases and religious matters and stuff like that. They kind of had their beginning in Numbers 11 when poor Moses was leading the millions of people out and trying to lead them and, and, and govern them. And he, poor Moses was like, God, what you, I can't do this. And, and God told him to find 70 men that were leaders in Israelite to help solve these cases. That's where their roots were with that. So this is who Nicodemus was. Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for you, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Okay, he's understanding the signs. He gets that. Why does he come at night? Well, we don't know. You can speculate why he came at night. Um, maybe he didn't want to cause a scene. He didn't want to have anyone else know. Maybe he wanted more time with Jesus. Your commentary gets into a little bit more of that. But the point of it is, 
he came to Jesus. The point is he came to Jesus. And he didn't do it in a public challenge like, who gives you the authority to do this? He wasn't trying to make a show of it. He truly was not on the defense. He came to inquire. He really wanted to understand what, who Jesus was, what was going on. He was seeing all these miracles, which were supposed to be proof of Jesus' deity, but he did not see Jesus as God. He saw, says you are someone who is from God. You can do these things because you're from God, that God is with you. But he wasn't making the connection that this is Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He was going to find out it's a high cost to follow Jesus. It's just not a matter of just, oh, I like what you do. Look what you did. I really liked how you fed everybody that day and different things like that and all these miracle things, the people you're healing and stuff, you know. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. He's kind of coming, wanting to know what's going on on the surface level kind of, but Jesus is going to take him deeper into the soul of who he is. And Jesus has three truly trulies in this passage here. Truly, truly. When you see a double word, it's extra emphasis on it. Like, Lord, Lord, away from me. That's an extra emphasis. Truly, truly affirms a vitally important truth. What Jesus is about to say, these three things he's going to tell Nicodemus is, is of vital importance. Pay attention. Truly, truly grabs his attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one sees God's kingdom unless they are born again. He wasn't referring to the universal kingdom where God is sovereign over all creation. Psalms 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. We're not talking about that kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of salvation. We're talking about a spiritual realm that's invisible. So he cannot see this kingdom of salvation unless one is born again. Because it's interesting, did some of you pick up, he says, see the kingdom, and the next one's enter the kingdom. Did you see the two different words there? So the first one is, it's an invisible kingdom, and you're not going to see it unless you're born again. The Jews were falsely believing that they, were gonna, they are a part of this. They, they knew there was this spiritual kingdom out there. They knew it was there. They all thought that they were living in this glorious realm of it just because they were born of Abraham, they were related to Abraham, that they observed the law, and they had all the external things that they were doing. They thought that they were in the kingdom. They were in this glorious kingdom. And Jesus is going to get them to a point to really self-examine. So Jesus says this to him, and Nicodemus is, this is devastating news to Nicodemus. This isn't just, oh, we're going to debate this. This is devastating. This is, this is crumbling his whole foundation on what he was raised on, what he had committed his life to, and what he was just living for to, to, to live out the law. And Jesus was saying, no, that's not what it's all about. Spiritual birth. He had built his whole life on the hope of who he is 
and on what he does, completely shattered. Jesus was telling him, being a Pharisee avails you nothing. There's nothing to it. You are not yet in the kingdom. Boom. Whoa. He wasn't coming expecting to hear that. He was coming to find out who this Jesus was. He wasn't, gonna, he wasn't expecting the tables to turn and have him start to self-examine what's going on here. What do you mean? This, this rabbi, this, this, this guy from Galilee is, is telling me that I have to abandon the entire system? He was shocked. Shocked. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the, his mother's womb and be born? It's like he starts throwing out these questions. What do you mean about that? I can't understand that. It's just like he's so frazzled. It's shaking him, and he's like, you ever do that and start throwing out these questions and everything? Nicodemus was a very intelligent man. And how they learned were lots of times in analogies and metaphors. Nicodemus, I believe, did not really think Jesus wanted him to climb back in a womb. It was a figure of speech. He's too bright for that. It's not concrete thinking here like a seven-year-old's going to have. A seven-year-old would ask this, but not Nicodemus. But he's going with Christ's analogy of it. And the analogy of being born again is basically saying to start all over. You need to go back to the beginning. We're going back to the beginning here, to the start of everything. Throw everything out, what you've been living for, what you've been learning and everything. We're just going to wash that. We're going to abandon it. We're going to go back to the beginning. So he's using Jesus' analogy to ask this. Start all over. If spiritual birth was like physical birth, then it's impossible from a human standpoint to, to have participate in that. We've talked about this. There's no human involvement on our part when we're born. We weren't asked to be born. We weren't, we're in the, we weren't in the deciding case to be born. We were born. And if, if it's like that, then Jesus is saying we really have no part about being spiritually reborn. So where does this leave Nicodemus, this Pharisee that was a leader of the people, where does that leave him? Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to admit to spiritual bankruptcy, to abandon everything he ever trusted in for salvation. Do you remember Paul? He was a Pharisee also. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, wasn't he? He did everything correctly to the T. No one, he was like, top grade in his class, Paul. And in Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, but whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is what Jesus was asking Nicodemus to do. It's rubbish, rubbish, trash. All that highfalutin stuff that you've done means nothing when it comes to coming into salvation. 
walking an aisle, getting baptized, you know, throwing your ficket in a fire at some camp, whatever, saying I, I le- learn how to speak Christianese means nothing, nothing if there isn't a born-again experience, a heart change. Jesus goes on and addresses him in verse 5 with the second truly, truly. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Forget about seeing the kingdom of God and realize you can't even enter it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I say to you. You must be born again. So he's telling him that don't be so shocked at this. You're marveled. You're, you're, you're like stuck. Stop being stuck at it. He goes on to say in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of water and spirit. Don't dig too much into that. It's kind of simplistic. Sometimes we just kind of, oh, it's got to mean something deep, whatever. Because we have to put it down in the context of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, who was a very well-learned Jew. The Old Testament is filled with symbolism for spiritual renewal and cleansing. Zechariah 13.1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Ezekiel 36. I forgot to mark this one. 36.24. It's a beautiful verse. God is talking. This is the I wills, all these I wills. I will, God will. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit with you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave you to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and I will be abundant. I will, I will, I will. Nicodemus knew this verse in Ezekiel. He knew it, that it was God's work that was going to do it. Water and spirit. Whoa, what is going through his head at this moment, you wonder? Jesus' point was unmistakable to Nicodemus. Without the spiritual washing of the soul and a cleansing by the Holy Spirit... Through the word of God, no one enters into God's kingdom. You can see how far they got off track with this stuff. Born of the flesh is flesh. Born of the spirit is spirit. And only the Holy Spirit can effect spiritual transformation unaided by human effort. We've got to get this. We've got to understand. We have to help people not miss the mark that is, okay, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer and, you know, There it was. I did it, and I got it out of the way and stuff. People know if there's a life change. People know. There's going to be fruit. It's going to manifest itself in their lives. 
Nicodemus is shocked by this. He's shocked by being wrong. He's going to have to have a total self-abandonment like all the Jews, not just him. The whole Jewish nation needed to be realized that Jesus was bringing in something new. Christ uses the example of the illustration of the wind. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. We don't understand it. We don't understand really a whole lot about the wind. We can see its effects. Jesus is saying you don't have to understand everything about the Spirit of God. You don't have to have that grasp of knowledge and get it in order to experience it. Nicodemus was confronted with this high cost of following Jesus. It meant to him that he had to give up everything that he really knew and was working on. But he did knew it, know it, but he had to abandon that in order to accept something else. There's a, there's a risk in, oh, you want me to let go of this before I, you want me to really? There, I've got so much invested in this. Remember the, the rich young ruler? Jesus, I want to follow you. And what did he tell him? Go home and sell everything. And he walked away in sadness. He didn't want to do it, did he? There's a cost to following Jesus. Verse 9, Nicodemus says to him again, How can this be? How can this be? He is perplexed by this. God's ways are not our ways, are they? Jesus calls him out. The only radical transformation, it's initiated by God in regeneration by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, can impart spiritual life in a spiritually dead person. That is the only way. You're not going to have it done by going to church or checking the box or getting baptized unless you have a true heart change and believe and self-examine what's going on. Nicodemus was recognized as an established teacher, yet he didn't get it. Boy, is that going to blow his cover. Whoa, what's he going to do now? I'm not who I presented to be. I'm just, I don't know, you guys. Can you hear about his next teaching to his little followers? I really, let's just erase the chalkboard and we're going to start over. How can he do that? What a humbling experience that would have been for Nicodemus with the people who he, who followed after him and looked up to him. He struggled to accept this. Um, all of his religious efforts were useless. He needed to start over. He needed to abandon it in order to gain the ki God's kingdom. He didn't accept the truth because he refused to believe it. How can this be? Couldn't put his mind up. Couldn't believe it. It was, had to be a total self-surrender. And that's what Jesus was saying. If you're going to follow me, it's a total self-surrender. Yielding your will to the will of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, Nicodemus had a big problem of unbelief. Big problem of unbelief. So we get the third, truly, truly, Jesus is going to say to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Whoa, boom, knock him down, humbled, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
we speak, we plural, Jesus, his disciples, John the Baptist, we, because we got a testimony here, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. And there's a lot of stuff seen, all his miracles, the baptism of Jesus, the, what, how John the Baptist proclaimed that. You know, we, that we have been testimony to that. John, the apostle, testimony, he's in that we. We bear witness to what we have seen, but you... You Pharisees, you Jews that don't believe, you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus rebuked him, and not just him, but the whole nation of Israel, because they rejected Christ. So he's using earthly things and heavenly things. Now, we just had the illustration of the wind, um, and it's like, okay, the wind blows. We don't understand that. He had the witness of the water into wine. That was an earthly thing that happened, but he's not getting it that only God can do that. How can he do that? He's not understanding these things. Nicodemus needed to admit his limitations. He needed to look at his life. He needed to realize that he did not yet have spiritual birth. Self-examination. I've been doing this stuff my whole life, practicing, studying the law. I have the whole book of the law, all the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch. I have it memorized. Such commitment to that, and yet it means nothing, and I really know I really think there might be some truth to this. I still stumble and sin. Though the law, knowing the law isn't saving me, it's a self-evaluation still within his soul to really have the, the need for a savior. He was a helpless sinner and he needed to admit it. He was in spiritual darkness and needed a savior. So Jesus is saying to him, you're not going to believe this stuff. How can you believe the heavenly things? The fact that he was standing before Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You need to self-examine. It's a self-examining. Well, let's finish it up with 13 to 15. No one, Jesus goes on to say, has ascended into heaven except the one, except who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Heavenly understandings. Probably there's, it's true that someone who's been there is going to understand it a little bit better than someone who hasn't been there, Right? And we know from John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God for, who is at the Father's side. He has made him home, known. So Jesus, God himself, who was with God in the beginning, he knows. He knows heaven. He knows what it's like in heaven. He can make a witness to that. And the illustration that Jesus uses again for this well educated Jew was the Old Testament story in Numbers 21 where the people were dying of snake bites because of their sin and they 
Moses was told to put the stake up and put the serpent up there. And all they had to do, they were dying. They were dying. All they had to do was look up. All they had to do was believe that if I look at this silly stick, I'm going to get cured. But how many stubborn hearts don't do that? This is the first of 15 references that John makes to eternal life. He's calling it eternal life. And belief, the belief that Jesus is trying to convey here, the belief of the gospel, the belief that he is the son of God, it consists of accepting it, not doing anything, which pretty much leaves someone like Nicodemus helpless. You mean I can't do anything? How many of our husbands, our men in our lives, if they have to fix it, right? <laughs> you mean there's not something I do to fix this? No. It's a belief. There's a high cost to following Jesus. A high cost. And this story is in here to help us realize it's just not something that we make. I mean, it's a, you have to really understand that there's a need there. There's a high cost, but what's the gain? The believer's gain is everlasting participation in the life of Christ through union with him, is eternal life. So when Nicodemus asks, how can this be? After he self-examines, and we know because we've read ahead that he does become a follower of Christ, but at this point, he goes home and he does that self-examination and after he does that, you, I'd like to think he would have this as his answer. Instead of asking, how can this be? He responds with Wesley's song. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Tits mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned soul lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I accept the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, just die for me. Almighty God, we are gratiated. Thank you. Amen.